Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let's read together today. If you need a Bible, our ushers are able to uh, help you with that. Just slip up your hand and they'll find you. You maybe uh, need a scripture to follow along if you don't have it on your device this morning. Um, we're going to begin looking at uh, Solomon's wisdom in relationship to the character of man. We've been looking at his wisdom in relationship to uh, various degrees of wealth that the Lord gives us. Neither wisdom's address to wealth or to the character of man here is, in, is meant to be completely comprehensive. The Bible addresses wealth and human relationships and relationship to character all over the place. Uh, but per our context here, um, we'll discuss uh, this time and the next time we're together, the remainder of chapter 7, where Solomon puts his laser focus on helping us understand and discern uh, the character of man. Let's begin reading here in chapter number 7, and then we're going to break up verse 15 to, verses, to verse 29 into three separate sections. So we'll read, then we'll give you those, or offer you those three separate sections that we'll address the next couple times that we're together. He says here, verse 15, I have seen everything during my life, lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes and a righteousness, and there is a, in his righteousness, and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing, and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Now that'll be our first point that we're going to uh, simply call uh, together here, um, a bold discernment. A bold discernment. If you even want to put in your notes, if you take notes, a bold determination. There's two kinds of character here that are mentioned. Solomon says both are dangerous. And then he concludes this in verse 18 by telling us that if you're going to be wise don't follow someone who is excessively applying righteousness or someone who's exclusively piling on wickedness in his life. We're going to describe both uh, with a biblical theology this morning. But he says the wisest person is not going to be or do any one of the lifestyles of these two kinds of people, but he's going to fear God and have a... Have a have a balanced wisdom. He goes on to say here, in our next section, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Okay. It's a powerful statement. 
And what we're going to have here in verses 19 to 22 is what we're going to call a balanced assessment. So, there's a bold determination or discernment. And here in verses 19 to 22, and probably you can add here verse 29 as well, is a balanced assessment. Verses 23 to 29 just outline for us a handful of what I call benign reminders. What I mean by benign is a synonym for the word benign is gentle. In relationship to the character of man, sometimes we just need some non-emotive, gentle, uh, I wouldn't call them casual reminders. I don't know if there's any part of the Bible that's casual, so we'll call them gentle uh, reminders about the character of man. And he says, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil and folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, I hesitate to read a portion of uh, this chapter, particularly this section on benign reminders, uh, because if you're going to look at a simple reading of this text, you might find Solomon be a bit of a chauvinist, and that's not what he's saying here. As a matter of fact, we'll find out next time we're together that the first time he mentions a woman or someone or something in a female way, he's actually talking about uh, the wisdom of fools. Uh, when Solomon writes, he, he uses, and he actually calls God's wisdom, he uses um, the word her or she often in the book of Proverbs. Well, he does the same thing with a fool's wisdom here. And then later on, he brings out the, the female gender again just to, in the Hebrew language, tell us that both male and female are depraved and fallen. And we'll explain more detail next time we're together what he means by the second address here to the female gender, but that's not for us today. What is for us today is verses 15 to 18. Verses 15 to 18, and we're going to consider his address to man's character as Solomon makes a bold determination or discernment here. It's a powerful, powerful section of Scripture, and I hope it will prove as helpful to you as it has to me in the last several weeks as I've been meditating and praying over uh, exactly what he's saying here and as we attach it to uh, the New Testament um, and our understanding of how to function with this wisdom in our context uh, 
in the church age, I hope, it'll, uh, hope it will be increasingly helpful to you. Okay? At first reading, verses 15 to 18, at first reading, it would appear that Solomon is saying, cease trying to be so good, and why don't you try to be a little bit bad? That's at first reading. So what is he really teaching here? At best he's saying, listen, when you look at a man in general, whether they seem righteous or wicked, don't allow yourselves to come to any conclusions about their character too quickly. One author would say, make sure that you're not judging another man's life by its cover. Don't judge the book by its cover. So let's see what's happening here altogether. Is Solomon saying don't be holy? Of course not. The language of the passage tells us that the phrase do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise is actually translated this way, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise for yourself. For yourself. Suggesting that the driving force behind one's religious activity could actually be selfishness. In other words, what's your motive for being a godly person? What's your motive for worshiping collectively with God's people. One author said this, don't put on false appearance of righteousness and wisdom. People will believe it, but your hypocrisy will cause them to be confused when God righteously judges you and corrects you. So he's saying here, there can be someone in a religious community that looks the role to you as being a righteous person, and actually when they do incur some type of affliction. It could actually be like some type of spiritual or religious persecution when it actually could be a, a, a selfishly motivated religious person who's actually incurring the discipline of God. So we need to be careful. He continues to say the danger is that men might delude themselves and others through a multiplicity of pseudo-religious acts of sanctimoniousness, showmanship, even in the art of worship, a spirit of hypercriticism against minor deviations from one's own cultural norms, which are equated with God's righteousness, and a disgusting conceit, holier-than-thou attitude, veneered over the whole mess. End quote. Again, don't be overly wise. In other words, don't think of yourself as anyone that has a complete corner on the truth of any Bible doctrine or application of it, and don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Proverbs 3, 7, which Solomon also wrote, obviously, says, be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Do not multiply your righteousness, Ian Pavan says. 
and do not play the part of the wise. Why destroy yourself in his transliteration? He goes on to say this, do not multiply your wickedness and do not be a downright fool. Why die before your time? That's a sobering translation, isn't it? For multiplying your own righteousness is equated with multiplying your own wickednesses. Therefore, bringing destruction upon yourself. So Solomon is trying to convey to us here that whether you're being overly righteous or overly wicked, both are bringing themselves to non-existence. We'll look at several New Testament examples of how this may have looked I think did look in a New Testament context for our learning. Uh, one of those would be like 1 Corinthians 11, where people are gathering for the partaking of the Lord's Supper and they're doing so with an inappropriate motive of personal gain. And Paul tells them to stop and says what? Judge your heart. Discern your heart before you make a fair show in the flesh and show up for this ordination that the church enjoys in the context of worship and people get the wrong impression of you. And then he goes on to say in the text, for some of you that will not judge your hearts, there's many who actually sleep. They've incurred the ruination of God on their life because they were showing themselves to be overly wise. They were doing this for themselves. We'll look at some other contexts here by way of cross-reference in, in just a little bit. These overly wise or religious people, they, they've relegated their existence to form over spiritual function. And they maybe have won many people to this way of doing church or worship for some time but it still doesn't make it right. So how does this look in our context? In our context, prophetically, Jesus said in Matthew 16, upon myself I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The Lord loves to build healthy churches, but Revelation 2 and 3 tells us the Lord closes the doors of sick churches churches he either builds them or he closes them okay so how does or how has the church in the new testament and even in our context in 21st century western culture brought ruin to herself by being overly wise or excessively Righteous? How have we selfishly, for ourselves, sought to actually promote something that's maybe extra biblical, even, in our own context? Could there possibly be noble things that you or the church pursues that are good commissions, but they're not about the Great Commission? How have we become imbalanced and Again, we're gonna let the Bible define these things for us, and hopefully uh, these will be helpful. So again here, I think we find 
something about this righteous person in this passage that, that they can perish in their righteousness and can ruin themselves. And the righteous man is actually practicing righteousness with his own wisdom, trying to gain an advantage over even God and man. Not comfortable exactly the way God wants things done, and certainly not comfortable with the opinions of man and how things should be done in, in, in personal walks with God and, and public worship together. As to the wicked person that's mentioned here that we'll also give some New Testament attention to and practical attention to, they without wisdom run to the excess of wickedness, completely disregarding God's will and bring their own premature destruction. So there's something flawed about the motivation and methodology with which both live their lives and preach their message. Ian Pravon goes on to say, both represent in their own way a refusal to accept the limitations God sets on mortal beings. So Solomon actually begins to investigate somewhat here whether we're content with the state in life the Lord has given us, spiritually or practically. He continues by saying that the arrogant self-deification in which mortal beings so regularly indulge as they seek to fashion reality after their own liking makes them both guilty of sin. It is indeed self-delusional. So we can conclude this morning together that we stop living life on purpose when we use excessive righteousness coupled with wisdom to make things what we want them to be instead of how God would have them to be, only to bring our own personal and corporate ruination. And in addition, as this passage says, we can avoid righteousness and wisdom and live strictly under the control of our own self-guided desires, and we can actually enjoy that. We can actually enjoy having other people follow that. We've got to be super careful. The language here of this text also teaches us that someone who's selfishly motivated by being excessively righteous or excessively wise is seeking also to make a profit. Not just to draw a crowd, not just to have a platform, but to also make a profit. What are some New Testament examples of, or illustrations of individuals or situations where we can see this wisdom of Solomon applied? I think the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount who loved to make a fair show in the flesh for personal gain. In Matthew 5, Matthew 6, I think we see this when the Lord Jesus Christ in his public ministry, right? Towards the end of his public ministry, he's cleansing the temple. Or in the name of religion, there's a, there's a prophet being made. And the house of prayer has been turned into a house of merchandise. I think we see this of Simeon in Acts 8. I think we see this somewhat in a non-ecclesiastical context, but in the name of maybe pagan religion in Acts 16 with the demon-possessed girl. 
who cultural leaders are using this little girl to make a profit from the community? I think we see this in Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, I was with you three years, night and day, with tears preaching to you the whole will of God. Why? Because when I left, I knew that there were going to be ravenous wolves who were left among you, right? Wolves in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing, unidentifiable physically, but there spiritually, and they're there to sift you, to ruin you, and the church. I think Peter describes, I know Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 2, and Jude uses very similar language in his short letter, describing the nature of, the motivation and the activity of false teachers. He says in 2 Peter 2, there will be false prophets. There were in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there will be. This is somewhat of a prophecy of Peter to the churches in Asia and Asia Minor as, as Paul was making his prophetic utterance, really uh, uh, his prediction, so to speak, to the Ephesian elders who pastored the churches in Ephesus. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing among you. There will be false teachers. So this is a reality that is. And so they would be in any flock, and, and I'm sure somewhere here this morning, they're probably here. Just based on Paul and Peter's statement, we pray all the time that the Lord would expose and protect us from, from unbelief. But the activity right? The nature, the motivation, and the activity of false teachers are described right in the Bible for us. Second Peter 2 and 3 and the book of Jude. I'd encourage you to just go through those and remind yourselves, maybe instruct your hearts for the first time exactly what those people are and what they do. So maybe when you start to see it here, right, you can be able to say, you know, hmm, I wonder if they're being overly wise, excessively righteous what's are they selfishly motivated for doing what they're doing and then see their reaction when they're caught see their reaction when they're identified it's sobering but helpful and the church of ephesus was a very very healthy church that paul's addressing in acts 20 so we're not we're not announcing the ruination of the church but we're announcing that there always will be at least one, if not more, people that are selfishly motivated in doing church. Okay. And they can bring attention to themselves and ultimately draw a group to themselves. And, and the purpose is certainly not to honor God and glorify Christ. It's a little bit like Diotrephes, right? I think Diotrephes here is, is another excellent example as the Apostle John writes in his epistles of a man who always loved to have the preeminence. This was a person that had to be heard. They had to be seen. And how was Diotrephes further described? He was someone that had worked his way into membership. And as soon as he had worked his way into membership and had a voice among the people of that little house church, he began to criticize the leadership. They'll work their way in, they'll get there, and then they'll start to, to criticize the membership. 
not just the leadership. And they'll draw a crowd to themselves. And it's a lonely crowd, to be sure. But nonetheless, they're being overly wise, excessively righteous for themselves, right? It's the antithesis of John the Baptist's heart cry of he must increase and I must decrease. These are the people that love to put themselves front and center. They love to be heard. They will cry with you. They will get angry with you. They will try to incite all kinds of emotion out of you. And they'll sift you in the meantime. Overly wise, excessively righteous. In our modern day context, I think you could pick any number, any one of a number of radio or televangelists to fit this description that Solomon gives us of not being excessively wise or overly righteous. What have some done from, you know, the grandfather and grandmother of this and Jim and Tammy Baker, right? All the way forward to current folks today sifting the flock of God over selfishly motivated self-prophecies of Bible inaccuracy twisting the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you know what, I would just rather please God than please man, including myself. He says, I'm not here to please anybody. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he told the Corinthian people who were doubting his motivations for coming to them, and they had started to slip away in their own walk from the Lord and being influenced by worldly things. And And he says, remember, I came to you not with enticing words of man wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power of God, preaching to you nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my motivation. That was who I am in my nature. And that was my activity. And really, you cannot tell me I tried to do anything else because that's all I did. He must increase, I must decrease. So in our culture that we're experiencing today, even in America, where there's an avalanche. And I, and, I, and I really hope that you stick with me through this because I'm not gonna be overwhelming or underwhelming with this. I'm just gonna kind of state it like it is, right? There is an avalanche of churches closing across our country. Jesus loves to build healthy churches and Jesus will close sick churches. Have churches in our culture been overly wise or excessively Righteous? Have they sought to do anything? Even Bible teaching churches, have they been distracted to the point where they're bringing their own destruction? We saw in 1 Corinthians 11, that could be a personal, physical destruction. But what about an ecclesiastical destruction? Closing the doors. From what I'm told, statistically, and I've shared with you this before, there's about 1,800 churches a month in the United States whose doors are closing of various evangelical denominations. So what's the problem? I don't ever seek to throw any one person or church under the bus for any reason. I will name false teachers like the bakers. I have no problem doing like Paul did in the scriptures, pointing out false teachers, right? Or those who are perpetuating false doctrine, But what I speak here, I'm speaking generally to what's 
we're seeing in our culture. And maybe it'll help uh, bring further application to uh, our text this morning. What has caused, in the long run, these churches that have been open for decades to eventually be closed? And I'd just like to restate again, you can vote to close a church. You can have the key that locks the door on your way out as the last member of that church. You can call a realtor to put a church property up for sale, but always be reminded, you did not close that church. God did. God did. And there's a reason why. I mean, folks, like, for real, there has to be a reason why, right? Does the Bible define for us what some of those reasons are? I think it does. We'll highlight a few, but, but here's some in our own culture that we've seen over time that we could fall prey to here at Grace if we're not careful. We personally, together, have seen a particular ministry in our country overemphasize a particular doctrine to their own ruination. So let's pick the doctrine of eschatology, the study of future things. What does the Bible say about future things? Right? That's a particular doctrine that I absolutely love. That, for me, could become a pet doctrine. I could stroke that. I could set up prophecy conferences like there used to be. Right? We could gain our we can get a large portion of our city to come and just preach on eschatology, and, but we could do that at the expense of the rest of the Bible. We could say, well, we taught the whole will of God in Sunday school and youth group and college and career, and, but boy, pastor, at his funeral, he could say, there was no one better in the country that preached on the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ than pastor so-and-so, but his church is closed now. What happened? What happened? There can be an overemphasis of a doctrine, a pet doctrine. There can be a de-emphasis of any one doctrine. In other words, we could give less attention to any one doctrine than the Bible gives to it, and in time, in time, Jesus will remove the lampstand. And there can be a de-emphasis, overemphasis, underemphasis, or complete de-emphasis. If the Bible has 100 doctrines, and we only preached 99, Jesus will close the doors. And he's awfully patient with that, isn't he? This is nothing that he does overnight. He's patient. We've seen in our culture, generally over the last 40 years, a tremendous invitation of the world into the church, rather than taking the church to the world. Bible-believing churches have been just as much at fault at this as churches that have moved more towards what we would call a worldly attractional model. We've had our own attractional model. 
Anytime you allow a worldly philosophy of how to grow the church or to get people to come to church to be your ecclesiastical motivational philosophy, in time, again, Jesus is patient, he's going to close your doors. Because we're not here to please man, but to what? Please God. You're not going to find it one time in your Bibles where God has asked any one of us or any one of his people since Acts 2 to go out and to bring people to church. I, we, for years have done that. We like our church. Come to church. I think you'll really like the people. I think you'll like us. I think you'll like, I think you'll like, I think you'll like. And churches have been doing this for decades and the doors are closing. Because they've been doing that at the expense of inviting people to Christ long before they invite them to church. We'll let you come to church and we'll let our pastor speak the name of Jesus, but we're certainly not out there doing that in building redemptive relationships. So they close. It's a church that may have 1,300 people on its membership roster. 50 people in a 2,000-seat auditorium show up for a morning service. The non-members leave, and there's 10 left who are members. 10 of 1,300-member roster to raise their hands to vote on to whether they're going to close the doors of the church. How did that happen? Preaching the word of God for a long time, dotting their I's, crossing their T's, doing everything right, so to speak, and yet they're still closing. Okay. We'll look at a church like that in just a moment, but it's still happening. We personally have seen, maybe you've seen it, an intentional misapplication of Scripture for some to get what they want. Some of those situations would be using the Bible out of context to get people to wear or not wear certain clothing, to to celebrate or not celebrate certain holidays, to, to build or to not build certain expansions to the church. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 has been used often with me by certain religious leaders who, who claim those two verses as their foundational text as to why they can prove that God only preserved his word in one translation. We've seen Christians misuse the doctrine of Christian liberty as a mean to gratify their own desires. The same has been done to the undoing of a weaker brother's life too. I think there's others of us that have seen an over-application of the wisdom for personal gain when some people try to discern the level of something other believers discover something of another believer's personal spiritual growth just by watching them externally without getting to know them personally. 
this religious person, one who lives life only to impress with quality externals themselves, typically has something to hide and is already in the process of self-ruination. There's probably 250 more particular illustrations or applications of, in our context, what it's looked like to be overly wise, personally motivated, selfishly motivated for attention and for gain, maybe. So Revelation chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me real quickly, we've given you some New Testament context and some contemporary scenarios where um, some have sought to be selfishly motivated. And sometimes they're even doing something that may be biblically right at the expense of other Bible doctrine. And again, overemphasis, deemphasis, underemphasis um, can be a problem. Revelation chapter 2 Many of you are familiar with this. If you're a newer believer, there's seven churches that Jesus himself evaluates in Revelation 2 and 3. I find it fascinating that each of the churches, he doesn't talk to the people, he directly addresses the pastor. Teaching us that flocks typically become like their leaders. So if churches are closing, it's because of the pastor's fault. The people just became like the pastor in time. That's a sobering reality for me to, to understand that. There's all kinds of ways pastors want to make sure their doors don't close, and so they'll do all kinds of pragmatic things to get people to make sure they stay open. But at that point, Jesus could have even removed the lampstand and the doors, church, church's doors could be open and Jesus' presence has long been absent. But he directly addresses the pastor and he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, I write. The angel here is just the Greek word for messenger. To the preacher here, synonymously, to the pastor of this church. And he speaks of himself, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds, speaking to the church of Ephesus. Now, this would have been the church that Paul had trained Timothy to pastor when Timothy was about 38 years old. This is the same church that Paul's addressing back in Acts 20 that we already talked about a few minutes ago. Where he reminds him he was with them three years, night and day, with tears, teaching them the whole will of God to protect them against wolves and sheep's clothing from within. when Timothy is pastoring this church at 38 years old and Paul writes to him first and second Timothy, the pastoral epistles, right? That's about 30 years before John hears this from Jesus about the church of Ephesus. Some would say that John had even pastored the church of Ephesus at one point, but now he's exiled to Patmos. So he's receiving a message from Jesus about the current pastor who's at Ephesus about some things they're doing and one thing they're not doing. So, I know your deeds. And when Jesus says, I know, he, he, he knows. <laughs> right? So this is like an omniscient thing, right? I know your deeds and your toil 
That's a quality thing. These are hardworking people in the ministry. And your perseverance, certainly another divine virtue. Certainly another divine virtue. They're, they're, They're existing well under the pressures of life, varying degrees of trial. There's another attribute in the next phrase in that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, right? So they're even practicing 1 John 4, 1. They're testing the spirits to see whether they be of God, right? And they are not. And you have found them false. And you have perseverance. I mean, you have endured for my name's sake. They've taught good Christology. They've taught Jesus well in their classrooms and in their pulpits. And you've not grown weary. Now, if we just stop with verse 3, I would say that we probably just finished defining thousands of Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. Would you agree? He's not condemning any of that. good we ought to be doing these things but he says here in verse 4 but I have this against you that you have left your first love now that was the root issue they had left their love for Christ therefore remember from where you have fallen now he's going to speak to this pastor very very personally Pat to the pastor of Ephesus, right? Because you've left your first love, now I'm going to describe to you where you're at personally and where you're at practically. He's going to say, You don't think much about how my grace saved you from a wicked life. You stop thinking about that. You stopped appreciating how grace transformed you. So now your people have stopped appreciating how grace has transformed them. And then he says here, there's something else that you need to do. You need to repent and do the first deeds you did it, and do the deeds you did it first. So there's two consequences here of him having a root problem of no longer having an appropriate affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgotten where he's been from. He's stopped appreciating where he is in that righteousness today, but he stopped doing the first deeds. And this word first in the Greek language is the Greek word protos, not chronos. So it's an order of priority, not time. And he says, there's one primary thing, pastor of Ephesus, that you've stopped doing. You stop doing the first works. The first works of what? Study it on your own time. This just is simply Jesus telling the pastor of the church of Ephesus that he stopped going out in town to make redemptive relationships for eternal purposes. And because he was not out in town building redemptive relationships for eternal purposes, his people weren't now. And, in, and Jesus tells this pastor to what? Repent. Repent because your flocks become like you. Repent. Or else, right? Or else what? Kind of hesitate to read the rest of it. 
I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Then he goes to compliment a few more things. But this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, some religiously sensual people in this culture, among other things, which I do hate. Verse 7, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of the life, which is in the paradise of God. So even the, church, the pastor of this Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church that stood against error and promoted good doctrine is told to repent. And we're seeing this all over the country, folks. Churches that are faithful preaching the Word of God who are closing their doors. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's an avalanche of them. And I'm telling you, it's on the pastor's shoulders. Take me to task on that. I know you wouldn't because you love me and I'm not going to take you to task on stuff in your life. I just, Folks, I'm telling you, it's right here. I mean, if you read a handful of the other churches that the Lord says, unless they repent, they're going to close, it's pretty obvious reasons that there's various degrees of darkness in their mix that the pastor himself is enjoying so he's not confronting his people but this particular church really self-identifies as being a church most like churches that you've enjoyed all your life or maybe you enjoy here when good bible teaching bible preaching pastors sit at the end of their lives and they're scratching their heads when they don't itch why is the church closing I think they just need to go here. The first place I go when I try to help counsel these sweet friends of mine is to tell them our own personal story where the Lord Jesus told us as pastors, you repent. So we kind of throw ourselves under the bus. Because several times since 1948, in the 34 years our former senior pastor has been here, and since I've been here in 06, we've come to that point where he thought, you know what, are we going to have to close these doors or not? But yet we're still preaching, teaching, honoring, standing against. Why? What's going on? And then you just come here and it's kind of like, oh wow, it's my fault. The church has become like me. So what do I have to turn and change? What do I have to do? I have to get back to the first things. Well, this isn't rocket science. What was my first priority? Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you what? That's pretty simple, right? Well, what does that mean? <laughs> he said prophetically twice, Acts 28, or Matthew 28, 19, and Acts 1, 8, you will go into the world and you will be my witnesses. Trust me. And I will add to my church, but you're going to be the ones to do it. Well, apparently pastors across this country have not been in their community intentionally, prayerfully, methodologically building redemptive relationships to try to win people to Christ. We have events that do that. We might blanket neighborhoods by mailers 
or leaflets. We may have commercials. We have invitations after funerals. Invite people to Christ at weddings. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But Jesus says to the pastor of Ephesus, you yourself haven't been in town personally lately doing the first works. So you repent, or we're going to close you up. And as Pastor Kent likes to say, he never puts the torch out. He just puts it somewhere else. Okay? So that's what I've had to do. That's what Pastor Hobie's had to do. <coughs> that's what Pastors Mike and Steve have had to do. And it's been hard, hasn't it? Why? Because we all only have 168 hours in our week. And those 168 hours are mostly full with other biblical obligations. Where do we have time? Well, then that becomes a wisdom issue. We've got to make time. I've had to make time. Most of you would say, Pastor, you're a really busy guy, so I hesitate even to call you. And what do I tell you every time? I'm no bit more busy than you are. And you chuckle and say, ha, 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 that's not true. <clears throat> I don't know, or I don't even really care if that's true or not. Right? But when you look at me as a busy guy, what do you look at me as a busy guy doing? Am I at least carving out a few hours of my week to be out there and intentionally building redemptive relationships? I'm not talking about merely socializing. I'm not talking about merely rubbing shoulders with people doing philanthropic works together. I'm not talking about being in the community, being a Christian do-gooder. I'm talking about building relationships with people who need Jesus, who know you're going to love them, whether they get saved or not. Amen. Never before in my life have I had what's been happening in my devotional life in the last couple months, where I'm regularly weeping and thanking God for my unsaved friends. And I'm imagining, boy, if they had passed away, if they do pass away, I would actually really miss them. As a pastor for years, you always pray for unsaved folks to get saved, but, but to thank the Lord as God's image bearers in your life that they actually mean that much to you? That you would actually miss them if they're gone? Personally, and certainly if they're gone without Jesus, it's a little bit more agonizing, but... And then I thought, wow, would they even miss me if I was gone? Would they even miss our church if we closed our doors, if Jesus closed the doors? And if they did, what would they miss about us? Would they, would they miss that we were a politically conservative church that no longer existed in the community? Would they, would they miss us because we're known as the church that loves to have a youth outreach at the high school or we like to have a day camp for kids? If they missed us, why would they miss us? And then I'm realizing, I'm realizing that as a pastor going through all this years ago, and I'm still growing, that I have made myself, we have made ourselves as pastors indispensable to the church. by not being redemptive in our intentions in town. Paul said to Timothy, do what? Commit faithful things to faithful men so that they can do the same thing. Paul was even telling Timothy, don't make yourself indispensable to the 
church. Make the church through evangelism and through studying the Bible together able to reproduce itself so it can exist without you. Right? Wow. And then I tell you this statistic all the time. 95% of American evangelicals, including pastors, have never won a friend to Christ in town. We have in Sunday school classes, we have under our roofs, we have our grandbabies, we have in Christian schools, Christian colleges, at invitations, 95%. 95%. That's not said to guilt trip you. I'm just saying... For me, as the pastor of the Church of Grace and Mentor, I had to repent. I had to at least go out, try to live life on purpose, for eternal purposes, and just try to win one. I didn't start doing this until I was 41 years old. I had been on staff here full time for 18 years. I had grown up in this church and had never won a friend to Christ until 41. I wasn't even intentionally trying out, going to go out and make friends until I was 20, until I was 32, excuse me. Thir- excuse me, 33. I had lived life in my ecclesiastical greenhouse in this beautiful place with beautiful people, and it was wonderful. Step outside that greenhouse, and what we were told, what, friendship with the world is enmity with God, B- blew that one out of context. When Jesus said, don't take them out of the world, Lord, but leave them there, but sanctify them by their truth because thy word's truth. How does that work in the Christian church? So anyways, all I'm trying to say is, even in a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church like Ephesus, like Grace, we can be excessively wise, overly righteous, and when you really skinny it down to what it is, and Jesus himself has to say, you need to repent, then there's got to be something that's selfishly motivated in me that's become a selfish motivation in the people. There has to be else. We're not told to repent. And what do we need to do? I don't know. For you, for me, that's my story. And I've got a lot of growing to do. But I think Solomon has some pretty grave comments here. But... I just thank the Lord for you folks who (laughs) who are trying to do our best, as feeble as the attempts attempts may be, to make sure we're doing the right thing the right way ecclesiastically and building redemptive relationships and so forth. Just a few few stories, illustrations, New Testament, current culture, our culture, uh, New Testament church culture and so forth. Our former pastor, who was my dad, always said this, right? Tim, time vindicates character. When the local church stands the test of time, she undoubtedly has won more spiritual battles than she's lost. That's true. The church can eat itself alive and bring its own ruin. And may we always be wise together in a spirit-filled, balanced fashion. Wise together. (laughs) Wise together. Overly wise, overly righteous people don't like to do things together. They like to pull people to them we let Christ increase, we decrease, and we do all of this together. And we do it in a spirit-filled, balanced fashion so as to humbly avoid 
bringing upon ourselves our own ruin. Our own ruin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for just this first bold determination that Solomon makes for us here. All we can do, Lord, is to take a simple reading of Scripture, and these are wisdom principles for sure, and look at the Scripture in our context in this dispensation, the church age, and and try to mine out how we apply this wisdom in particular contexts. And I trust we've done that somewhat well this morning, Lord. Um, Obviously, we don't have enough time to comprehensively handle it, but I pray that uh, as folks have listened this morning, as I've had to do, Help me to increasingly help us to increasingly understand what it means to be selfishly motivated in ministry. And help us not to be that. Help us, Lord, not to overemphasize, underemphasize, or de-emphasize any part of the Word of God. Help us to handle and give as much attention to it as you give to it. As we grow deeper in the Word together, help us, Lord, to fervently pray that our that our spiritual light would shine brighter in our community i pray that in our time uh, that every person in this room that claims the name of jesus would be able to spiritually reproduce themselves just once just one time just one time lord we have not because we ask not i pray that we would carve out time in our time we spend with you on our knees and in private uh, begging you that you would just help us to lift up our own eyes see that the fields are white into harvest and give us wisdom to build holy but intentional relationships with those who need Jesus and Lord help us to see your miraculous grace use us to help a spiritually needy person so thank you Uh, thank you for as far as we understand it, keeping the lampstand lit here and help me as a pastor to, to do the right thing the right way, to help these sweet sheep do the same uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.